his mind. And here is your host, Gary Cachulio. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank all my listeners for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are Candice Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Ms. Aida, psychic and author of Who Do Justice Magic, binaural production engineer Damian Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, monthly co-host Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us, and monthly co-host Kath Baldwin, author of The Forgiveness Workshop. If you are interested in contributing to this podcast, go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and you'll find everything there. Now, without further ado, our guest for today is Rebecca F. Pittman, and she is here to talk about her new book, Countdown to Murder. Thank you for coming on today. Well, thanks for having me, Gary. So, who is Pam Hupp, and what did she do? Who is Pam Hupp is an excellent question. We're still trying to figure her out. Uh, She's been making headlines for a while, especially with the new NBC miniseries, The Thing About Them. Uh, That began airing March 8th. It's on every Tuesday night. It's a uh, six-week episode series, so... Episode four is tomorrow night. So it's it's blowing up. Uh, Renee Zellweger is playing Pam Hupp. Pam Hupp uh, is basically a serial killer. And it's rare. Uh, female serial killers really only rank in 5 to 7% of the serial killer population. She's out of St. Louis. She came on the radar in uh, 2011 when her best friend Betsy Faria was found stabbed to death, uh, over 56 stab wounds, and Pam had been the last person to see her alive. She'd taken Betsy home that night. Um, She was a star witness for the prosecution that came after Betsy's husband, Russ. Later, during a sequence of events, uh, she was found guilty of shooting a total stranger named Louis Gumpenberger, whom she lured to her home and shot him five times during a 911 call. And she's on, uh, she's in prison for life for that murder. They did find her guilty. In the meantime, between those two murders, her mother plunged from a third floor balcony at her senior citizen living facility. And that's being looked into right now. Um, they're pretty sure Pam pushed her over for the insurance money. Pam's trial is now in the making. Uh, They're going for the death penalty for the murder of her best friend, Betsy Faria. And uh, again, it was insurance money. Pam benefited $150,000 from Betsy's death. So in a nutshell, that's who she is. She was your typical uh, housewife. And I don't know if we use that word anymore. The police use that word to describe her. And flipped houses with her husband But it seemed like wherever Pam went, something went wrong, whether it was cars being keyed, anonymous hate mail, uh, animal parts found in someone's front yard in her neighborhood. It was just there's everywhere she went, something evil was happening. And it's it's a story that's unbelievable, Gary. Hmm. So 
during your research, um, what was her childhood like? Like, what made her the way she is? Well, we don't know much about her till high school, and uh, she was raised Catholic. Her mother was a school teacher. Her father was just a you know hardworking uh, blue collar guy. Uh, high school, she was described as bubbly, outgoing. She was a cheerleader, very athletic. She had a striking figure, um, big smile. I have pictures of her in the book from her high school yearbook, and it's the same broad grin that stays on her face perpetually. And the only thing that kind of marred her attractiveness was a very broad, flat nose. Um, but by all accounts, her friends said that she was very bright. And when she went to work for um, insurance companies, they said she was their key Provide a producer. She was very intelligent, the right right hand person, and I just I don't know what happened. All of a sudden, um, and during her time in Florida, during her second marriage, I think something went wrong. Suddenly, she started getting fired for forging signatures at the insurance company she worked for. And we're currently looking into whether there may be another victim of hers in Naples, Florida. And we're looking at that right now. There's been rumors. And then she and her husband moved back to Missouri, and that's when everything started. And um, so I don't know. People ask the thing. The mystery about her is what in the world happened to this woman. But it seems to all have to do with money. Hmm. Interesting. Um, so during the process of writing this book, um, obviously you had to do some research. So while you were doing research, did you were you able to talk to any of her family members, friends, yeah, yeah. co-workers? I, uh, I interviewed like? them. Well, it's hard because you're writing about something that was horrific. And I talked a lot. I interviewed her daughter, Mariah, who was 17 at the time. And we're talking about her mother literally being butchered. 56 stab wounds. The knife was still found protruding from Betsy's neck. Her wrists were cut all the way to the bone. Um, it was really bad. And they had, she, Mariah had just seen her mother an hour before. When Pam picked her up to take her home, uh, Betsy was sitting there playing a board game with her family just an hour before. And then Mariah, again at 17, was the one the police took through the crime scene the next morning for her to see, do you see anything out of place, anything unusual? And there's her mother's blood all over the carpet. Her, you know, the Christmas stockings are still with her, you know, whoops, did I lose you? It turned out um, are you there. still there? Okay. So the Christmas stockings are still hanging there with Mariah's name on it and her sister's and Betsy's name and Russ's. They did, this was literally two days after Christmas. So talk about a juxtaposition of a holiday season. There's blood splattered across presents, uh, bags of presents. And so for me to write this book was really hard. Because these people are now friends with me on Facebook. I've talked with them. I interviewed uh, Betsy's best friend, Rita, who knew an awful lot about what was going on behind the scenes. And um, I interviewed Betsy's sister. 
then tons of interviews with uh, the prosecuting attorneys in the different cases, the detectives, the police officers, the IT experts. They all gave me their time, which I'm totally appreciative of. And then the prosecuting attorney supplied me with the crime scene photos and the 911 calls, the audios. And, you know, that's, I take that, I, I'm just, I, I'm humbled by it because they trusted me with the information. And these guys are working so hard to bring some justice to this. It's 11 years old now, and the family has just suffered through so much. So to write the book was a little hard for me. Um, I, I chose the photos that I felt were less graphic, and I wanted the book to be comprehensive, but I didn't want to cause the family any more pain. So that was kind of hard for me. So during your interviews, are there what are some of the uh, stories or information that you found that really sticks out for you? I think the interview with Chief um, Nesky, John Nesky, he was uh, he was the first responder when Pam shot Louis Gumpenberger, and he pulled up and she was out in the driveway. And so we have a firsthand account that I haven't seen anywhere else. I think I'm the only one that interviewed him. And he pulled up and she's standing there with her dog on a leash going, I shot him, I shot him, I shot him. And, you know, you don't know what's going on yet. All, all the 911 call said was she said her name was Pam. She didn't say her last name. Now, this is six years after Betsy Faria's murder. Betsy's husband has been found guilty because Pam set him up. She staged, she staged the murder scene as well as told detectives all this stuff. Russ is in prison. He's been in there for three and a half years. And so she made headlines in Lincoln County during that trial when Russ was convicted. She was their star witness. She's now moved to a different county, O'Fallon. And so right, she, right now, this guy doesn't know who he's talking to. Some lady that's standing out there screaming, I shot him. And he, so he peeks in. He goes, where is he? She goes, right there. And she points through the garage, which is open. The guy looks through the door that goes into the house, into the garage, and he's laying right there. And it's clear that he's dead. So he comes back out, and he says, what happened? And she goes, I was backing down the driveway to go do errands, and this this silver car came pulling up and she described the driver and it was clear she was describing Russ Faria, who got a second trial and has now been released. And that's why Lewis actually ends up getting shot is um, Russ's attorney. Now that he got Russ out of jail after a second trial, made it clear he's coming after Pam. And so anyway, so this, so Chief Nesky is saying, and she said, so this guy jumps into my car, holds a knife to my throat, says, we're going to the bank to get Russ's money. Well, the money they're talking about is the 150000 Pam got from Betsy's death that should have gone to Russ. And so Chief Nesky's saying, who's Russ? She goes, I don't know. I don't know any Russ. And then she just keeps this mantra. He just kept saying, we're going to go to the bank and get Russ's money. Who's Russ? I don't know. So meanwhile, the medics show up and they put Pam in the back of the ambulance just to check her over to make sure she's okay. It's obvious this gentleman in the home is dead. And this was for me one of the aha moments in the book because you just asked. Um, 
the one detective comes out of the back of the ambulance, comes over to Chief Nesky, goes, you know who that is in there, right? And he goes, no. Pam Hupp? And he's going, I know that sounds familiar. And he went, the Betsy Faria murder case in Lincoln County? And he goes, oh, no. Okay, time out. Back up. Russ Faria. Yeah. She just told me she didn't know Russ. So now that starts the whole thing rolling. They bring her in and question her. And six days later, she's arrested for Lewis's murder. They found out she bought the knife she staged in the car to make it look like he had actually held a knife to her throat. She bought it at the dollar store. She bought a notepad and a pen for a note that was found in Lewis's pocket. She, the 911 call is horrific to listen to. You can, she deliberately lured this man to her home. She picked him out, Gary sitting in front of an apartment building, total stranger, said, I'm Kathy with Dateline. I'm a producer. I'll give you $1,000 if you come with me to do a 911 reenactment call for the show. And this Lewis was disabled. He'd been in a car wreck. He was 33, physically in great shape, but he had the mentality of a 12-year-old. And she could have told that immediately. That's what's so heinous about this. She knew immediately uh-oh, his voice is slurred, he limps, and she took him anyway. And he believed her, and he got in the car, she got him home, she told him what to say, to pound on the walls like he's threatening her, and as soon as she got him in place, she called the real 911 so she'd have a witness. And she's going, help, help, some of the intruders broken into my house, help, help. And then you hear him saying, you want me to do to you what you did? And he said the wrong line that she gave him. And she went, no, no, I'm not going to get in the car with you. And you hear pounding on the wall. And the dispatchers kept trying to get her address. And she wouldn't answer her. She didn't want him to get there too soon. Ma'am, what is your address? Help, help, help. And you can hear pounding. And then suddenly you hear the five gunshots, which... For me, that was really hard. Um, and then the, for some reason, the shots set off the smoke alarm. And you hear the dispatcher telling who, you know, whoever she's dispatching to now the alarms are going off. And what's incredible to me, Gary, is there's like over 30 seconds of silence where this dispatcher's going, ma'am, ma'am, right after the shots, you can hear the alarm going off. I think it was during that time that Pam was sticking a note in that poor man's pocket and a Ziploc with nine, with nine $100 bills. Um, the note was supposed to look like Russ Faria had told this guy to come get her, kidnap her, take her to the bank, get his money, and then kill her. So she was trying to send Russ back to prison and take the heat off herself. And the thing that uh, sunk her was the $9,100 bills were in perfect sequence. They hadn't circulated yet. They were fresh out of the bank. They found the other $100 bill still in her nightstand in perfect sequential order. They said the odds of that happening, that a stranger would have nine of those bills and she's got the other one or like one in 20 billion. So that also sunk her. 
but she literally killed a total stranger just to take the heat off of herself and send Russ back to prison. Mm -hmm. And she is now in prison for life for that one. And they are, we have a new prosecutor now that's going after her for Betsy Faria's murder. They're going over all the new DNA evidence right now. And a preliminary hearing should be this fall and the trial should be next year. That's an elaborate scheme. But but she made some uh, dumb but some dumb mistakes. Really dumb mistakes. I mean that's the thing. The prosecuting attorney Tim Lomar that sent her to prison for Lewis said, "This is a scheme a middle schooler could have come up with." I mean it. It's just. I mean she probably thought, "How smart of me! I've got a nine one one dispatcher as my witness that this guy broke in my house and was trying to hurt me." But. Um, yeah, it's a story that's unbelievable. It just keeps going. And they just reopened uh, the case into her mother's death. It was ruled an accident at the time. But once she killed Louis Gumpenberger, they circled back around and went, wait a minute. And it, they moved it to undetermined. But they're starting to look more into that one. Her mother was found with eight times the amount of Ambien in her system than anyone should have. And so it looked like Pam drugged her to the gills before she pushed her over the balcony. Hmm. Do you think this is all the victims or do you think there's more? I think that I, I, the thing is, is once you get someone that's killed several people, sometimes rumors can get started. But there is something that may have happened in Naples because she did suddenly come into some money and told someone uh, when they asked, where'd you get the money to get a nice house like that? She said this elderly woman that lived three doors down from us died and left me a lot of money. And that's her M.O. I mean, Betsy died four days after signing Pam over as the beneficiary of her life insurance policy. She only did that because Betsy was dying of cancer. They gave her three years. She was worried about her daughters. And Pam said, hey, leave me the beneficiary instead of Russ. Russ is just going to blow it. You know it. He'll go through the money. And I'll make sure your daughters get it through, as they get older. They may need, you know, for a wedding or whatever. And she talked her into changing the beneficiary and putting, her, putting it in Pam's name. Four days later, she's found murdered in her living room. And Pam was the last one to see her. And yet... The Lincoln County detectives bought everything Pam told them, no matter how many times her story changed. And it changed a lot. Within sentences, it changed. But they had Russ. Uh, they thought, we got the guy we need. Uh, they found bloody slippers in the master bedroom closet. Uh, they found blood on the light switch going into his closet. This was all the stuff that Pam had done to stage it to look like he did it after she murdered Betsy. So not only did she take these girls' mother from them, she set their stepdad up to go to prison for life. I mean, this is someone with no soul. And it's it, the story just kept getting stranger and stranger, and her stories kept changing, and yet the detectives wouldn't look at her. So that's some so pretty, that's some pretty sloppy detective work. Well, have, 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 have these detectives been fired? 
they're all they've all been let go. But uh, it's worse than that. The new prosecutor that's going after Pam for the death penalty for Betsy, he's going after them, too. So there'll probably be two trials. They'll be including the prosecuting attorney and possibly the judge that sat in on Russ's trial. There was a lot that went wrong. So not only is this a, a story of, of murder, this is also a story of um, how poor our justice system is. Well, in all fairness, Troy, Missouri is a very small rural area. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was the prosecuting attorney's first murder trial. I think it was the judge's first murder trial. The judge and the prosecuting attorney knew each other, had for a long time. Uh, and what they're showing now is evidence that the that there was perjury on the stand, that there was faked evidence that the detectives turned in, that they actually lied on the stand about evidence that wasn't even there to set Russ up. By the time the second trial came around, when Russ's attorney, Joel Schwartz, convinced a different judge, hey, there's enough here to look at this other person. And they didn't allow Joel to question Pam Hupp in the first trial, which would have given the jury reasonable doubt. This is the last person to see Betsy alive. She got $150,000 that was only put into her name four days before Betsy's murdered. And every time he tried to question Pam, the prosecuting attorney shut him down and the judge ruled in in the prosecuting attorney's favor. He never got to ask. And finally, he's just like, because Pam, the first time the detectives talked to her the morning after Betsy's murder, they said, did you go in the house? When Pam brought Betsy home, no, you didn't go in the house. No, it looked scary because the lights were all off and the door was unlocked. And Russ was at a game night. He went every Tuesday night. So Pam knew that too. She knew he wasn't going to be home, probably wouldn't be home till nine. She brought Betsy home at seven. So in like two sentences later, I, you know what? I did go in the house. Um, I did, I went in and I turned on the foyer light and the living room light. So you did go in the house. Yes. Is that the only place you went? Okay. So Betsy did take me to the master bedroom to show me a Christmas present that Russ got her. So yeah, I did that too. Well, basically Pam put herself everywhere that her DNA would show what might show up in the three places that it was important because the master bedroom was where the bloody slippers and the light switch were found. So if they happened to find any of her DNA, oh, well, that's the reason I was in the bedroom. She just wanted to show me a present. She said she turned the kitchen light on. The knife used to kill Betsy was from the kitchen. She said she turned the living room light on. That's where Betsy was found dead. So she kept changing her story, and it still didn't do anything to have these detectives go, something's wrong here. Then she said, I left her laying on the couch to watch TV, and I called her at 727 to tell her I'm home. And that's the only time they questioned her. They went, wait a minute, you live 30 minutes away. You had her on the phone telling your husband Merry Christmas at 7.04 when you pulled in the driveway. You couldn't possibly have been home. It's the only time they questioned her. Oh, 
Well, yeah, no. I mean, I was home. I mean, I was home free, meaning I'd gotten to the freeway where I knew where I was now because I don't know my way around Troy. Still, they didn't question that. And they could look at her cell phone data. They could tell, you know, where she was Mm -hmm. pinging off the tower. When she made that call at 727 to Betsy to say, I'm home, she was only three miles from Betsy's house or at the least she was still in Betsy's house. And I think she probably was still there and made that call knowing it would show up as evidence that she wasn't there anymore. I think she was still there. At 7.04, you pull up. We know Betsy put the dog out and put the dog on a chain. We know that she went back out to the little car to get her chemo bag that she hadn't had all weekend, came in with that, took her medicine out, supposedly took Pam to the bedroom to show her a present. I don't think she did that part but then lays down on the couch with a blanket over her. I mean, let's figure that, what, even if you give it only 10 minutes, that's now we're at 7.15. And her daughter, Leah, had called her mom and said, I'm going to call you in 20 minutes. This was right when they pulled in the driveway because I need you to, to talk to the cell phone company and say you're authorizing that you're adding me to your plan. I'm going over to the cell phone store. All right, all right. So she had the phone in her hand and the little cell phone. And when Leah called at 721, she didn't answer. She called her at 727, no answer. 730, no answer. So we believe now she was dead by 721 or was being killed at that time. The cell phone was found with blood on it already um, next to the couch. Uh, where she was found murdered on the floor. So that's just chilling to me. I can't imagine what her daughter felt like knowing that when that phone was ringing, her mother was probably being knifed to death. I just, I don't know. The whole thing is just so heartbreaking. This, this, The families are still reeling today. It never ends. Now there's another trial coming up. Do you think that she was always a murderer or a criminal? Um, Or do you think that there was some type of stressor that set her off on this path? I think there was some aberration in her personality. She bragged. I mean, she was in insurance sales. Salesmen are good at selling themselves, and she was good. She could be your buddy. I get after watching the videos why the detectives loved her. I mean, she could just sit there and make you laugh. She was breezy. She never fumbled for a word. Um, and she bragged that she knew how to read people. Uh, I think there was a propensity probably all along, maybe for not having a lot of empathy. We know now she did not get along with her mom. She was closer to her dad, that they butted heads. Uh, I don't know. When she actually had to get married the first time around, uh, it was prom night in high school, and she found out she was pregnant and that she's Catholic. And I think her her date may have been, too. So three months later, they got married, and it lasted six years. And then she married her uh, the husband that she was married to. He's, he since divorced her in 2020 after she went to prison for life, but... 
So I don't know. I think something, I, I don't you think that unless there's a huge brain injury or something that most of these people somewhere underneath, whether it's a narcissist, uh, there's some aberration of personality that comes out at some point. But what we're seeing with her, it was usually fueled by a need for money. Every time somebody died, she was in dire straits financially and would go buy a house. Uh, with Betsy's money, she went and bought a house, very nice house. Um, she did it again. She used the money from her mother's death to get a facelift and um, buy a twenty. 2016 GMC Acadia and it's just it's just like it seems like every time she was about to really run into a financial difficulty somebody died and that's the part that to me it's a total lack of empathy for anybody I mean this is your mother even if you didn't get along with her really and then be, with Lewis Gumpenberger, she'd actually tried to get two other people into her car posing as a Dateline producer, and they didn't bite. They, you know, thought, okay, something's really wrong here. She was going to kill them. In fact, one of the people that she tried to get into her car that actually got her on video, which helped nail that case. You can see her license plate, Pam's. And you can see her face right after she picked up this lady named Carol and was posing as a, was going to take her and kill her. And now this lady is sitting there going, she was going to kill me. And when she wouldn't go with her, Pam circled the block and stopped the guy mowing lawns and tried it on him and he wouldn't get in the car. Unfortunately for Lewis, because he was disabled and did not know how to read that he was being manipulated and used. He got in the car. Uh, so to that's a long answer to your question, but I believe most people, either some big trauma in their life caused it. And I've heard some serial killers were locked in the closet when they were little. Um, you know, I can, I can see that. With her, I don't see where it came from. I, you don't see anything in her past. In fact, her high school friend said when she moved back from Florida, she was different. She cut off all connection with her friends. You don't see her with any friends. Um, she insinuated herself into Betsy's life. She wasn't Betsy's best friend. She was like seven down the list of Betsy's friends. She had a ton of friends. You don't see Pam with any friends. And they said something changed after she got back from Florida. So you think something happened to her in Florida? And what was she doing in Florida on that trip? Who was she with? Was she with her father? And is there anything that we know about her father? No, basically um, her second marriage uh, with Mark Hupp, they moved to Naples, Florida. Okay. And they lived there quite a while, over 10 years. And they they ended up with a pretty nice house with an indoor swimming pool. And I'm wondering if that's possibly when somebody died. Uh, the hard part is, and I've talked with the Naples Sheriff's Department, and I've gotten pretty far on finding out where they lived and who the neighbors were, because she's, the rumor is she said this person was three doors down. The problem, and the police have told me this in Naples, if it looked like 
a natural death, it's not coming on their radar. That makes it hard. If this was an elderly person, you could make it look like they died of natural causes, especially if it was someone that maybe didn't have close family, that was a widow, that didn't have anybody around. And what's interesting is that, and you're going to love this one, Gary, in, when she was, Pam was living in Florida, she was running an in-home business called Medical Billing Review. And when I looked that up, it said fake. It actually said this is a fake company. So how perfect is that? Because elderly people tend to have a lot more medical bills. Mm -hmm. If she met this woman, possibly from saying, I can help you combine your bills, maybe get them reduced. Now you're going to find out everything about that person, their age, whether they've got family, what their medical problems are. It would be pretty darn easy to have something happen to that person and make it look like natural causes. Plus, she was already fired twice for forging signatures on insurance policies. So the Naples Sheriff's Department was really nice, but they said if this is not a proven homicide, it's not on our radar. Good luck. <laughs> and yeah, it's hard. I'm still trying, um, but I think there might have been something there. So what does she say about it? When the people interview Pam, what does she have to say? Hardly anybody interviews Pam. Uh, Chris Hayes is the Fox 2 news reporter in St. Louis. He, at the time, was the only person to interview her, and she hated him. He became her nemesis because he was everywhere she was. And right after her mom died, and right after... Um, Russ was in prison, um, Chris knocked on her door and she hadn't been talking to anybody. And what, what surprised him, because I interviewed him for the book as well, is she stood there and talked to him for 30 minutes. And he actually said, what happened to your mom? Because her mom died on Halloween and, and Chris talked to her, I think it was January 4th. So it was not that long after. And she goes, and you can, it's on, you can go YouTube this. You can go look at Chris's interview with her. And you can see the surprise on her face. She goes, what, what happened to my mom? Yeah, what happened to her? She died. Well, well how did she die? I don't know. The people at the, at the living facility say that she's got Alzheimer's and she tripped and fell and she died. He goes, wow, I'm really sorry to hear that. And she's like this. And he goes, so just fell through the balcony? I mean, really? And so Pam goes, well, those, and she knew all about the railings. Those railings are like only an inch thick. They're really, they're hollow. They're not that sturdy. So, yeah. And Chris went. Do you, did she have a series of depression or anything? Because Pam says the, the, they think she committed suicide. Holy heck. And he goes, did she have a history of that? She goes, I don't know. How do you tell with somebody with Alzheimer's? So she, he was the only one that ever even got her to stand there and say very much. I know they probably, the um, Prosecuting, prosecuting attorney's team, I'm, I think, have talked to her a couple of times in prison, but she's not talking. 
and she's certainly denying everything. Um, can I tell you one interesting thing? So when she's in jail for Louis Gumpenberger, her trial hasn't come up yet, but she's in jail and she's talking to her husband and all of the jail phone calls are recorded. And she, they had, you know, brought her in on an arraignment and told her all of the charges. And she's making fun of these people to her husband. She was, oh, you should have seen him. It was like law and order. It was like Barney Fife. His face was bright red. She's making fun of them. And she goes, they think they've got me. They're saying that they could use the star system in the car and track where I went, which they did. And it shows on there that she did pull up to Lewis's apartment complex and sit there for four minutes. They tracked every move she made. And what was even sadder was once they found out her route through the Google Maps, they looked along that route for any store that had a surveillance camera pointed toward the road. And finally, a bakery not far from Pam's house caught the video image and there's Lewis sitting in the passenger seat. Mm -hmm. The guy that she claimed was brought to her house, jumped out of a car and held a knife to her. He's in her car. And so you can see that she picked him up, drove him home and killed him. So she's making fun of what the detectives are saying. Look, this is the evidence we've got against you. She's making fun of it to her husband and saying, and the thing that they don't get is that that star thing was turned off. And her husband, Mark, goes, it's turned off, but it's never really off. It's always on. And it's the first time you hear her pause. It is? Uh-huh. Huh. Okay. <clears throat> Whatever. And he goes, yeah. Okay. Whatever. And it was shortly after that she took the Alford plea rather than go to trial. And as you probably know, an Alford just means you're admitting that the prosecution probably has enough to get you, but you're not going to say you're guilty for the crime. So she went to prison for life rather than the death penalty. So the husband, is he, did he, is he still around? Did he divorce her? He divorced her in 2020. I think it was, I think he believed her for a really long time. He told the golf buddy afterwards, he goes, I, I can't, I did not know I was married to this crazy lady for all those years. Um, so once he saw probably the video of her trying to pick up that one lady and saying she was a Dateline producer and everything else, he finally divorced. Well, plus she's in prison for life now. So he divorced her in 2020. What amazes me is he stayed in the same house where she shot Louis Gumpenberger in 2016. I think he's still living there. And I don't know if I could do that. Um, I don't think he was in on it. There, I mean, the new investigation now, they're re-going over because it was tainted with Russ that the detectives had fake evidence and everything else. This new prosecution team and the new detectives are starting from scratch to bring this case against Pam for killing Betsy. So I don't know, maybe they'll find new DNA that shows somebody helped Pam. I don't know. But um, 
Yeah, it's just it is just such a super bizarre chain of events, and they all precipitated each other uh, right before Russ's second trial when. Pam knew if they let him go, she's in trouble. She's the only other suspect. The detectives that put Russ in prison with the fake testimonies and everything, they're desperate. Because if his second trial shows that there was perjury and faked evidence, their butts are on the line now too. So they're bringing Pam in for interview after interview after interview. Look, what else do you remember? And they are even, and this is, being recorded in an interrogation room, which blows my mind. And they're literally saying, okay, we've been talking amongst ourselves, and here's what we think might have happened that night you took Betsy home. By any chance, when you came out, did you see Russ? Maybe he knew you were there or saw your car. By any chance, did you see him? And this was in July leading up to Russ's second trial. The second trial was November. And Pam went, no. It was a very short answer. She said no. She came back in October right before his trial and said, you know what? I remember now. I did. I did see somebody that night. And you can hear the detective's voice getting all excited. He goes, you did? Yes, I saw two men, two and they were sitting in this little silver car where she kept bringing up their silver Nissan that they had. And one of them ducked. And the, 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 the detective's all excited. He goes, who do you think it was? She goes, I think it was Russ. And then she drops the bombshell, Gary. This is right before Russ's second trial. This is all these years later. And she over three years later, she suddenly remembers... Um, so, you know, while I was helping Betsy through the cancer, we became really close. And, you know, she was leaning on me and one thing led to another and I became what a husband would be. And the prosecute, the new prosecution team, Russ's defense attorneys, rather, my, I'm sorry, were listening to this new evidence and their jaws dropped. And they went, she didn't just say, and she did, that they had become lovers and that Russ caught him once and actually pushed Pam up against the wall and threatened her, if I ever see you two together again, I'm going to cut you up and bury you in the backyard. And she's going, it was nasty. The spit was flying in my face. This is what she remembers three and a half years later, right before the trial. So the detective letter the first time saying, by any chance did you see him? Then he comes back around and says, um, okay, we got a problem here though. You spent that money, that Betsy's insurance money that was supposed to go to her daughters. The daughters haven't gotten a dime. And she goes, no, huh? they haven't yet. I haven't done it yet. And he said, well, I thought you were going to set up a trust. Well, I did. I just didn't put any money in it yet. Okay. Well, that's a problem because the jury could see that as you came into a sudden windfall at her death, promising to give the money to the kids, you haven't given them any. Can you please put the 150,000 in that account before the trial? Oh, okay. So what happens? Two weeks later, her mother plunges off a balcony and Pam gets the insurance money. 
And four days, just four days before Russ's second trial, she puts $100,000 into the trust. When she was asked, why didn't you put the whole 150, she said she was helping another family whose mother was dying of cancer. She also changed her story and said it was her mother's Alzheimer's bills she was paying with it. So she basically killed her mother in order to put that 100000 in during Russ's trial to take suspicion away from herself. And when um, he was found, th- anyway, she revoked it later. It went, the daughters took her to civil court to get the money. The judge said, I can't do anything. The paperwork's all in order. Your mother was in life insurance. If she'd wanted to put your names on it, she'd have done it. I can't do anything. It's in order. And Pam got the 150000 and got to keep it. So when Russ was acquitted and Joel Schwartz, his attorney, said he was going after Pam, that's when she shot Louis Gumpenberger, put a fake note in his pocket to look like Russ had sent him. It just, it was always about money or deflecting suspicion from herself. That's the sad part. Everybody was disposable. Psychopath. Pretty much. Hmm. Um, so what do you think the outcome is going to be with this case? Well, they're going into it right now. I don't think, I mean, the thing I admire about these guys, the new prosecuting, the new prosecuting attorneys, Mike Wood, amazing guy. I mean, ethics doesn't even come close to describing him. Um, he's starting from scratch and he wants every T crossed, even though I think they've got an unbreakable case. He's not satisfied. He's having his detectives go over everything all over again. Uh, They actually brought all of the evidence from Betsy's murder from the first trial against Russ over to a different county because they were so afraid that something could happen to it if they left it where it was. So it's now in a secure war room where these two lead detectives have started all over. Um, Bill Wilcox has been so kind to talk with me. We talk a couple of times a week and he keeps me updated on what's going on. And obviously I can't talk about it. And he'll say, you can't say this and you can't print it yet. And I'm going, okay, okay. Cause I'm going to do a sequel when the preliminary hearing and the trial comes out, I'll do a sequel to the countdown to murder Pam Hupp book. But so that's, what's going on right now is they've already arraigned her. Um, what was interesting this was last year. They made her do the perp walk from the jail across the parking lot to the courthouse to arraign her to have, you know, she has the right to plead guilty or not guilty. She didn't want to go. I'm not, I, because she knew all the reporters were going to be standing in the parking lot. And she said, my attorney can just say not guilty. They went, nope, you're going to come. And COVID worked out for her because she got to keep the mask on. But as she's walking across the parking lot, Chris Hayes with Fox 2 News, whom she hates, yells out, Hey, Pam, is there anything you want to say to Betsy Faria's family? And she just looks straight ahead. So they go in. It's very quick. She's only in there a few minutes. And um, she pleads not guilty. And they put her back. 
So right now, what's looking like, I think, is August, they're going to be, it may not be the preliminary hearing, but something leading up to it. But I think before Christmas, we should have the preliminary hearing where the prosecution presents its case. And I'm hoping the trial's next year. With a death penalty case, they can stretch out. They don't, they take this seriously. This is someone's life. And you don't want to go in there until you've got everything lined up and you're sure of your case. And the reason they didn't do the death penalty, one of the reasons with Lewis Gumpenberger, even though they had her cold, was uh, Tim Lomar, the prosecuting attorney, went to Lewis's family and said, what do you want to do? And he said, if we go for the death penalty and they give her that, the appeal process can go on for years. We could have trial after trial where she appeals and appeals and appeals, and they didn't want to keep going through that pain. So they said, this is good enough. She's in prison for life. She can't hurt anybody else. But this time they're going for the death penalty. I mean, this is so heinous. She's, this was supposed to be her best friend who had just had chemo that day, was weak, is laying on the couch helpless, holding a cell phone, waiting for her daughter to call. And she knifes her 56 times. And what's so sad is we believe now that the first blow may have been the knife that went through her neck and out the other side. It literally cut her jugular, which would have cut her windpipe. I mean, it was over right then. I mean, seriously. In fact, when she was found, her tongue was protruding, which shows... You can't get air. The only time um, that someone is found with their tongue protruding is usually from a hanging, drowning, uh, burning, actually, because you usually die from smoke inhalation before you're actually burned. And so she couldn't breathe. And you can tell from the crime scene that she lunged from the couch. She's got the blanket wrapped around her. And the throw rug in front of the fireplace is flipped. And you can see exactly where her foot probably hit it. It flipped. The cell phone went flying. It's laying by that rug. And from the blood patterns on the carpet, it looked like she went down twice on her knees. And Pam was on top of her and just kept stabbing her. But almost, I'm going to say, 75 to 80% of the wounds were post-mortem which means she was trying to make it look like an act of rage. She didn't need to stab her that many times. Um, when Russ made the 911 call, when he came home and found his wife, he said, I think she killed herself. And Betsy had tried before in a half-hearted suicide attempt when she found out she had cancer. She had a knife. Russ took it from her and actually cut himself in the process. She'd left a suicide note before he comes home. It's dark. He sees her laying on the carpet with the knife in her neck. And the, the, the biggest wounds were here on both wrists. And they were deep. They went all the way down to the bone. Blood under her head. And he panicked. I mean, that's a horrible thing to see. Her tongue sticking out. And he goes into the kitchen. He's in hysterics. The, the dispatcher can't even get him to calm down. And he says, I think she killed herself. Well, that came back to biting because once the detectives and the crime scene investigators came in and took one look at the body and started counting the wounds, 
including some that are in the back. Well, it's obviously this woman did not commit suicide. And anybody looking at her would have known that. So that went against him that he said that. So when you look at everything that was done, and then they believed that the slippers, breasts of slippers were dipped in the blood. There's no blood on the bottoms of the sole. There's no tracks through the blood in the carpet or down the hallway. So it looked like somebody dipped the tops and sides of them in the blood. And then the blood that's found on the light switch going into the master closet where the slippers were found, it doesn't look like, it looks like it's got a weave pattern. It doesn't look like a fingerprint or anything else. It looks like fabric. On the knife handle that's in her neck, it's the same pattern. It's a weave. It's not a palm print. And everybody was trying to figure out what was that. And so here's what came out last year in the new prosecuting attorney's probable cause statement, which is chilling. When Betsy was found laying on the floor, she had anklet socks on. And they're halfway off her feet, both, both feet. You can see her bare ankle and heel. And they're bloody. But there's no blood on her feet. If she'd stepped in blood or blood had gotten on them, it would have gone through the sock to her feet. There's nothing there. And now what they found is inside the sock where the blood is, it looks more like fingers were there, not toes. So what they're thinking is the murderer took her socks off and used them as gloves to swipe the light plate with her blood and to do this to the knife that's in her neck. I think whoever it was wiped their prints off of it and then pressed that, the blood over the handle. And then they tried to put the socks back on her feet. It wasn't going back on very well. You can see a little bit of a blood transfer on her heel like they were trying to hold her foot and get it back on and they gave up and they left it like that. I mean, that's really chilling. And to me, it says that whoever it was wasn't wearing gloves. If you were already wearing gloves, you wouldn't need to use someone's socks as gloves. And that's just me. Mm. But really, would you? Mm. I mean, I think she wiped off the parts that were important and then put some blood transfer over them to cover them up. So that's my thought. Interesting. Wow. It'll be interesting to see how this turns out and uh, what we find out going forward with this tape, with with this case. Um, you've written some other books, and one of them that, that stood about stood out to me was because uh, I've done some paranormal investigation. Is um, the history and hauntings of the infamous Stanley Hotel? Oh yeah. I, I only lived 35 minutes from it. I live in Colorado, and I was up there, oh, my gosh, um, twice a month. It's so gorgeous. The setting is so gorgeous. And it, was, it surprised me that no one had written a comprehensive book about it because, A, F.O. Stanley, who invented the Stanley steamer motor car, built it. There's actually one of his cars in 1909 in the lobby, which I think is really cool. And then you've got Stephen King's influence on it that it inspired him to write The Shining. And um, I was just surprised. There were, there were a couple of smaller pamphlet-style books, but not a comprehensive book on it. So I asked the owner if I could. He said yes. 
And with all of my books, I let the owners of these venues read them before they go to print. Mm -hmm. It's important to me that I have it right, that they're happy with how they're represented. And um, so that's what I do with all the books. But that was the first book in the History and Haunting series, and it's because I lived right here. So while I'm writing that one, someone says, well, have you heard of the Myrtle's Plantation? So there I go. And then have you heard of Limp Mansion in St. Louis? Went after that. You heard of Lizzie Borden? <laughs> did that one. Then the Salem Witch Trials. Um, and then the Palace of Versailles. And I was extremely tickled that the palace actually gave me permission to write about their paranormal activity. I was the only one that was granted permission to do that. So that was, that's a big book. That one and Lizzie Borden are uh, like 800 pages. This is a big book. With all my books, they're packed with photographs, though. So it's not as daunting as it sounds. Um, but those are important to me. I, I go to a lot of trouble to do interviews and to get the photographs, maps, documents, diaries. And when you're working with these venues and they know they get to read it before it goes to print, they trust you. And I appreciate that. This is Big for me that they are letting me write about something that they put their blood, sweat, and tears into to refurbish and bring some of these old buildings back to life. And their history is insane. And so that's that's kind of so they turn over documents and diaries and things that other people haven't seen to me for the books. So that's I think that's awesome. I also advertise them a lot on Facebook. I promote their events. I think we have a great friendship besides just writing about them. And that, that means a lot to me. Hmm. So, like, for example, like with the Stanley Hotel and living so close, did you do any paranormal investigations yourself there? Yeah, I stayed there for a week while I was writing the book. Um, I also paint wall murals and do faux painting and the... Owner said, I'll make you a deal. We've got some chips out of the wall in the uh, main floor from the luggage carts. Uh, when Stephen King did his miniseries of The Shining at the Stanley, they thought it was too cheerful because it was white wallpaper embossed. It was very pretty, but it wasn't sinister enough. So they brought Hollywood in to do fake mahogany, dark wood. It looks like real wood. That's mm -hmm. what I love about faux painting. And he said, if you'll copy what Hollywood did and fix some of the imperfections, you can stay here for a week for free, room and board all you need, and you can interview everybody when you're not painting. I went, deal. So I stayed there, and, um, yeah, I was with a group of people walking down the hallway on the fourth floor, and thank goodness I had all these witnesses. There's like seven of us. There was nobody there. This was November. So the shine, the big shining Halloween ball was over. And uh, it was pretty quiet. And we're walking along and all of a sudden it's like somebody took a big draw on a pipe and blew tobacco smoke in our face. And it was so strong that we all stopped and gagged at the same time. In fact, I have long hair and I remember pulling my hair up and smelling it because it was so strong and I couldn't smell it on my hair and then it was just gone. It was like somebody had just cut it off, which you 
a, a smell that strong would dissipate. It wouldn't cut off like that. And so there was that. My my watch kept stopping, and I had a wind-up. It was a Timex. It wasn't digital. And every morning when I woke up to go paint and I would put it on, it had stopped at 119. I thought, what the heck? And during the day while I'm painting, I would look down at it, and it was back to the correct time. How are you going to do that with a wind-up? I mean, a digital might pop back to the right time, but not a wind-up watch. And it happened five mornings in a row, and I'd become really good friends with the gift store owner. And I told her about it. She went, ooh, maybe something happened on January 19th in the room you're in. And then we were going, maybe somebody died at 119. And, you know, so I'm going, you're not helping me here. I have to sleep in there tonight. And so she goes, let's Google it. I said, how do you Google 119? So she Googled it, and the first three things that came up were scriptures, and it was either James or John, I've forgotten. But what it said was, um, don't fear the shifting shadows because I'm with you. And I'm in a haunted, and I'm right next door to one of the most haunted rooms at the hotel. And she goes, didn't your mom just die? I said, yeah. She goes, maybe it's your mom telling you don't be afraid of the ghosts that she's with you. And I started crying because I was still very emotional about her death. But that was weird. Um, just just stuff like that. I was on a tour with Mary Orton, who was the, the lead tour guide. They called her Scary Mary. And I'm writing the book, and I wanted to go on an actual tour so I could write how they do it. And there was 10 other people. And we're going right outside of room 217, which is where Stephen King stayed. And it's their most popular room. And we're heading from the second floor up to the third. And the staircase goes around so that when you get to the third floor balcony, you can look down and see the stairs in the second floor. So I let everybody else go ahead of me. And I stopped on the landing between the second and third floor. And everybody else was right above me looking down on us over the balcony and over the banister and I was, I stopped and asked her a question and I jumped and I had on a sleeveless top. It was like June and something, it felt like something had burned something into my arm and I wasn't leaning against the wall or anything. And I looked down and there's like a four inch square, like a big four inch ice cube burned into my arm. It was this red welt starting up. And when I gasped, all the people above me, started taking pictures of me over the banister and they're going, <gasps> so we went up there to look and depending on where they were standing, you could see this green orb the size of a soccer ball with a tail coming out of it going across my throat. Oh, wow. And it was from different, what was interesting was it was from different angles because they were standing around the band. So they all got it, but it was at different angles. And so I asked Mary about it, and she said, I think I know what happened to you. I think that was Sarah. I said, who's Sarah? She goes, she's a 14-year-old ghost that was a nanny. She would, she would be in the 1900s on the fourth floor. That's where they kept the kids. The rich people would come vacation all summer. The kids would stay on the fourth floor with the nannies. She goes, Sarah was six feet tall which is really tall for back then. And I'm six foot two. 
And she goes, I think she saw you as a kindred spirit. <laughs> and I said, well, next time, tell her to just tap me on the shoulder, say, let's start a volleyball team, but don't burn something into my arm. <laughs> it didn't go away for the rest of the day. You could still see it on my arm. And um, so, yeah, I, I believe the Stanley Hotel is haunted. Hmm. So how about the Lizzie Borden house? What about Lizzie? Is, is, do you think that one's haunted as well? I do. I mean, I think with that house, when you've got two murders there, you've already got atmosphere. You can feel it when you walk in the door, and it's been restored to look exactly like it was the day of the murders. I stayed there twice um, in Lizzie's room so that I could write about it well. I could describe it. Mainly, I wanted to lay there in that in the bed and picture what her thoughts were the night before the murders, listening to her parents on the other side of the wall, because their bed's right there. And I there was a there were people staying in that room the same night I was there, and you can hear them. So I knew she could hear her her parents talking. Mm -hmm. Well, Abby was her stepmother, but. I thought, how do you lie here and know you're going to take a hatchet to these people the next day? And that's what was going through my head was the, all of that. Um, I didn't notice anything supernatural um, while I was staying there. But from interviewing the tour guides and the owners, I guess it happens a lot. And I had people writing into me with their experiences. You could... The tour guides um, hear, hear voices all the time from the landing where Lizzie's boardroom is. Sometimes it's two men. Sometimes it's a man and a woman. When they've been there alone cleaning, um, Danielle Cabral, who is uh, a tour guide there, said there's wooden stairs going up to the bedrooms. It's exactly like it was then. She said she'd be going, she'd be there alone and going up to change the beds because you can stay overnight. And she'd hear shoes behind her on the stairs. And I've gone up down those stairs a hundred times and you can hear everything. It's clunk, clunk, clunk. And she'd turn around and there's nobody there. And then she said something came up behind her and went in her ear. I said, what do you think that means? She goes, I think it was Abby saying I wasn't cleaning right because she was so proud of that house and was constantly dusting and cleaning. She goes, I think it was Abby. So I have no doubt that stuff happens there. I don't know how stuff couldn't when you have two brutal murders like that. And then I've stayed in Lizzie's mansion, Maplecroft, um, eight nights total. Uh, the owners have been very kind to let me stay there because it's not open to the public. And I've been there alone. That's not scary. <laughs> <laughs> this thing is this gorgeous mansion. Again, return to the period. It's all antique furniture. And I would have to walk down the hall at night to use the bathroom. And the bathroom is still Lizzie's bathtub. It's her sink. It's the mirror she looked in. And when you're walking, you know, Victorian homes they're dark. They they don't have all the windows we do now, especially the hallways. And I'd walk past Lizzie's room and look in there and see that dark bed and shadows. And there's Emma's room and it's dark in there. And it's, a, it's kind of a long way down the hallway and I'm by myself. And again, I didn't, 
experience anything particularly paranormal, but it's very heavy atmosphere. You can't help but feel it. And that house is huge. <laughs> Six bedrooms. So um, that's, I don't know, that's the thing with, uh, for me, the most haunted place was Limp Mansion mm -hmm. in St. Louis, where something kicked the bed and sat on my feet and I heard gunshots in the hallway. And the fact that four members of the Limp family in the mid-1800s and early 1900s shot themselves, um, committed suicide in the home, to hear gunshots. Uh, and I don't mean muffled. And I thought if I heard a residual haunting, it would be muffled. This was, I mean, I felt like ice water went through me. It was bang, bang. This is really loud dog bark. And there's no dogs. I'm up on the second floor. And luckily, my, my nephew and my sister had stayed with me, and my nephew heard it. And I was so happy to have a witness. Um, and I found out later, because I was still researching the book, that Charles Lent, who was the last one to commit suicide in the mansion, had shot the dog first, and then himself, because he didn't want to leave the dog alone. And the thing that still haunts me, Gary, pardon the pun, is the sequence. If you shot the dog first, wouldn't you hear the dog bark first and then two gunshots? But it wasn't. It was bang, bang, woo. And that still bothers me. And I don't know. Can a residual haunting be backwards if the house is playing the loop? Maybe it was murder. Ooh. Well... So anyway, I get teased that I spend the night in these super haunted places by myself. <laughs> after like reading, well, after Pam Hupp, I'm more afraid of what the living can do to you than ghosts. True. Yeah, people are a little scary. Tell me, may I ask you a question? Mm -hmm. What got you interested in the unexplained? Uh, it's just been with me ever since I was a kid. Um, I mean, I, I was a kid. I first started out reading tarot cards. Um, then I had a experience where I had a grandmother that passed away, and I saw her ghost while I was delivering papers as a kid. And my paper route. Um, so it, and you it, saw her while you were doing a paper route. Yeah, I was doing. I I, it was the weirdest thing. I I delivered a, one place. One of the places I delivered to was like this a factory. There was like one guy who lived in this factory, and that was it. And he, he got the paper delivered, and it has this like, you know, big empty parking lot. And I'm riding my bike through the parking lot, and I look over, and I just see her gliding across the parking lot. She looks over at me, waves and smiles, and vanished. Oh my word! How old were you? Eleven, maybe. Well, what did you think? Well, I thought it was her. I thought it was her ghost. And, you know, of course, I told my mom, they're like, oh, don't let your dad hear that, <laughs> you know? <laughs> That's great. Well, yeah, and would you agree with me that once that stuff happens to you, you can't go back to not believing? I mean, once that door's open, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like, every little thing that's happened to me has changed me, you know? Like, I mean, it was bad as a kid, and, um, you know? I don't know what maybe the next thing was. I don't know. I've had so many weird things happen to me. You know, 
even like I've had a near death experience that really changed me big time. Oh, I can imagine. So, so yeah. Do you think there's something about you that stuff gravitates toward? Do you think you're a vessel or that you're just sensitive to things? Not really. I think everybody is. I think it's just having an open mind. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's, if you're open to it, you're, you'll see it. If you're not open to it, you're not. Well, that's the thing. I mean, you know, when you get teased a lot about it, I've learned to just say, okay, it's not your cup of tea. I know what happened to me, and you don't have to believe me. Yeah. Yeah, that's basically my take, too. Well, can I share one other thing with you about Pam Hupp that shows you just how weird this woman is? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, my word. Okay, so when they when she shot Lewis Gumpenberger and the detectives bring her in to question her, now keep in mind these are not the other detectives from Russ's trial that they were all buddy-buddy and she was their star. This is a different county. So she starts off joking with them. I mean, she shot somebody literally an hour before, and she's joking with them. Actually, reached across the table and popped the one guy. You know, she's playing the the same thing, thinking it's going to work, and it's not working. And they come in and take her shoes and say, we need to look at your cell phone. And suddenly she's feeling, uh-oh, it's not working this time. And she, in the video, and again, you can go on YouTube and see these videos. She looks across at the detective. The other one took her shoes and she goes, I just want to know why everybody's coming at me. And you can see she's starting to get worried. This one's different. And then they do look at her cell phone. And like I told you, found out she went to his Lewis's apartment. They So they've got all this stuff on her. So anyway, they let her go home. And the next morning, uh, Robert Patrick with the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, he's a journalist. He's there with his cameraman, just, you know, hoping to see something. Pam comes out of the house with her husband, Mark, and Mark's carrying a giant white garbage bag. And they get a picture of it. And the picture's in the book. And they later found out the contents of that bag. And a lot of it was was important papers. It was her mother's will. She even had Betsy's um, 10 night something, some tax form. And I'm going, what are you doing with that? Uh, all of these important papers, even bank accounts on her own family were in there and some clothes, but they weren't bloody clothes. They were t-shirts and flip-flops. I'm still trying to figure out what that was for. So, but the important papers are the clue here because they got a search warrant for her house. And when they went through the house, they found a safe. But the safe wasn't included in the search warrant. So they had to go get a different search warrant in order to seize the, the safe. In the meantime, they arrest Pam a few days later. This is several days after the white garbage bag came out the door. So they had to break the door down. She's in jail, and I guess Mark locked the house up. So they broke the front door down. I have a picture in the book of the policeman coming out carrying this safe that's, you know, it's a house safe. And this is the crack up. And I'm sorry if there's any humor in this awful story. They get the safe to the police station. And when they open it, guess what was in it? 
one tube of KY jelly. <laughs> so basically, I think all of those documents that were in the garbage bag, she had emptied out the safe and knew they were probably going to take it. And that was her subtle hint to the detectives of what they could do. <laughs> Can you believe that? No, that's crazy. That is insane. <laughs> She's a mess. The prosecuting attorney told me that one while I was interviewing me. He goes, Rebecca, I haven't told this to anybody. Do you want to hear this one? I said, I don't think there's anything you could tell me that wouldn't surprise me. And when he told me that, I went, all right, you got me. That one surprised. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. I mean, showing that shows you right there. She had no fear of what they were going to do to her. Mm -hmm. the, the narcissism of this woman was unlimited. She thought, well, they all said that. Even when Dateline had um, Tim Lomar and these people on, they, in fact, Dateline did six episodes, six different shows on Pam Hub. Hmm. That's how big this case is. And so Keith Morrison is interviewing Tim Walmart. And Tim said, the thing is, is, she thought she was smarter than everybody. And he said, this thing with Lewis Gumpenberger is a scheme a middle schooler could have come up with. And Keith's grinning. He goes, she's not going to like you said that. And Tim's <laughs> grinning. He goes, nope, she probably won't. <laughs> So, you know, anything can happen with Pam. I don't know. I don't think she can take the Alfred again on the Betsy Faria case. It's death penalty. I don't, I don't know if she can do that again. The other thing that is standing as a question mark is right now her well, he's the ex now, but he was married to her at the time. Um, he's not cooperating. He's been pretty quiet and can't does spousal immunity pertain if you're divorced. So that's a big question. Can he, with this new trial coming up, claim spousal immunity and not have to testify? We still don't know what time Pam got home the night Betsy was murdered. She told detectives that she got home, watched TV with Mark, took a shower and went to bed. We don't know what time she got home. When the detectives went to questioning, they got only one sentence out and she took over and shut it down. They never asked him anything else. All they said was, uh, so Pam called you when they pulled into the driveway and Betsy got on the phone and, you know, cause they were trying to verify Betsy was alive at 704. And he goes, yeah, I didn't hear it right then. Cause I left my cell phone in the truck. I didn't hear it till the next morning. That's the only sentence that man got out. And instead of taking him and interviewing him in private, they let Pam sit right there and she took over the conversation hmm. and started burying Russ saying, yeah, he used to put a pillow over Betsy's face and say, this is going to, this is what it's going to feel like when you die because Betsy was dying of cancer. That never happened. She was doing, so yeah, we went to the gym and, and Betsy took a drink out of a Gatorade bottle from her gym bag and spit it out and said it tasted funny. So she's trying to make it look like Russ had been poisoning her. And so with Mark, we've yet 
to get anything. We don't know exactly what time she got home. And that's a big thing. Because if, if it was a long time, we know it took 30 minutes from Betsy's house to get home. If she didn't get home till later, where was she? Did she go somewhere else to clean up? Uh, the coroner and the crime scene tech said whoever did this would have had blood all over them. There was no blood. There was no cleanup in the house. They took the drains, the drain traps. There was no blood. So that's always been a mystery. How did she do that? There's no, her DNA hasn't been found anywhere yet. I don't know. And then there's one more big weird one. The the couch that Betsy was lying on right before she was murdered, it has two throw pillows, not couch kitchens, but cushions, but the little square throw pillows like you buy. Mm -hmm. And they were laying on their side on the right armrest, and she had her head on them. Well, later the crime scene tech took pictures and another knife, a different knife with a long blade is between the two couch pillows with the blade pointing down toward the kit, the cushion. And that's bothered me for a long time and nothing ever came of it. They seized it into evidence. It was never brought up during the trials. Nobody's mentioned it again. Why was it there? And at first I thought, did she put it there to make it look like Betsy was keeping it there because she was afraid of Russ? Did Russ put it there? So, you know, not, I'm not saying they did. I'm saying she staged it to look like, did Russ put it there like he'd be handy to kill her? And none of those jived with me. And the other morning when I woke up, it was like a light bulb came on. I went, oh my gosh. According to Betsy's daughter, Mariah, when Pam picked her mother up that night to take her home, they were going to watch a movie together, Pam and Betsy, until Russ came home. And Mariah said, yeah, that was the plan. They were going to watch a movie together. So the only time Pam was alone in that house without Betsy when she brought her home was when Betsy went out to the car to get her chemo bag. Now, Pam knows she's going to kill her. What if she put that knife between the two cushions to get it ready, thinking, okay, when she comes back in, we're going to sit here. That's the couch facing the TV. We're going to sit here. I'll sit here by the pillows, like right-handed. Once she's watching the movie and she's distracted, plus she's really weak. Her white cell count was low from the chemo and everything. Pam can just reach between those pillows and get that knife and turn around and attack her. But what I'm wondering is if when Betsy came back in and took the pills out of the bag, if Pam said, do you want a glass of water? Yeah, that'd be nice. You know, something like that. The kitchen is right there. It's just steps from the couch. It's like three steps from the couch. And what if she went toward the kitchen and instead of Betsy sitting down, Betsy laid down, which is where she was when she was attacked. She didn't count on that. Maybe Betsy, with her head on those pillows, will crap. I can't get at the knife now. The butcher block thing of knives is sitting right there, and the knife found left in her neck, the murder weapon, came out of that butcher block, and they proved it. And she's going, all right, I'll get a different knife. And then came in and was maybe being solicitous, and, you know, here, let me put the blanket over you, and then whips out the other knife and attacks her. That makes more sense to me 
And I'm not saying that that's what happened, but they're going over all the new evidence now. What if they do find some of Pam's DNA on that knife handle? Because I don't think anybody did anything with it. They had the murder weapon. It was still embedded in her body. And I don't know. But it's odd because the book came out in December. And for that to wake me up two mornings ago, I'm going, hmm. <laughs> but to me, that's not a bad scenario. And I, I don't know. So anyway, there's a lot of things that could still happen. And the detectives are nice to humor me. We'll talk and I'll come up with my ideas and they'll tell me stuff. And But I want to make it clear, they're very careful not to, to do anything that would compromise the case or to share things with me that would compromise the case. Yeah, I, I don't want anybody to think that there's any carelessness going on here. That's not what it is at all. So I I don't know, Gary, I think, I think we're in for some more surprises. I don't think we're done. It's a good theory you have. Do you think so? Yeah, it makes sense. Well, how sad. That poor woman. Here's the last face you see is somebody that you thought was your friend comforting you and trying to take care of you. I mean, good grief. All for money. And those poor girls have yet to see any of it. They're friends with me on Facebook. And here's, I would like to end this with saying something warm-hearted. Mariah, the one that was 17 at the time of her mom's death, the one that they had walked through the crime scene. I mean, they're still devastated. And they're mothers now. And Mariah has a two-year-old boy. And she found out she was pregnant with a little girl. And the girl was due on Betsy's birthday. And... That's so awesome. And so Betsy's birthday was just two days ago, and Mariah missed it by only four days. The baby came four days early. But she's named her after her mother. And I'm getting emotional here. But, I, you know, she's, she's so happy. She asked me in the interview, do you think this is a sign that I'm having a little girl and she's due on my mom's birthday? And I said, well, of course I think it's a sign. And it's nice to see something beautiful come out of all of this mess. But the girls never got any of it. Well, hopefully there'll be justice. That would be nice. And if anybody can do it, it's Mike Wood and his detectives and his co-counsel Delaney and, and Sheriff Harold. We've got all new players and they're going after it. And I'm super proud to know them. I have to tell you something cute because I'm watching the miniseries. And uh, tomorrow night's episode, it's on NBC. If people are interested, it's called The Thing About Pam. I think this is the one that's going to show her killing her mom. And again, Renee Zellweger is playing Pam. So I'm watching them, these actors coming onto this show that are people I know. And so they introduced Mike Wood. He Again, he's the new prosecuting attorney that's going after Pam for the death penalty. And and they it's the first time you see him. And this actor comes in uh, to portray him. So I text Mike while it was on. And I went, wow, they sure picked a handsome actor to play you. I think it's called typecasting. And five minutes later, I get this text going, Rebecca, 
I really needed to hear that today. <laughs> he said, thank you for that. And I said, hey, truth is truth. So it's really odd to be texting these people mm -hmm. who are being represented in a TV show. Hmm. But I, I really appreciate the opportunity to be here, Gary. It is a fascinating case. And again, it's still got a ways to go. Awesome. So thank you for taking the time to be on. It was fantastic listening to this story, even though it was tragic and an awful side of human nature. Um, before we wrap it up, though, where is the best place for my listeners to find you and find your books? Oh, how kind. Uh, my website is www.rebeccaf, as in Frank, Pittman Books. Dot com. Rebecca F. Pittman books dot com. They're all for sale on Amazon. If you go on Amazon and put me in the browser, it'll show all the books. Um, and uh, you know what? If any of you have bought the book or are going to buy the book, as Gary knows, reviews are super important, whether they're for a podcast or anything else. I would sure love it if you would post a review. They really do help sales. <laughs> they help people to get a sense of what your book's about. It's you agree with thing, me on that one, Gary? the first thing people read is the yeah. reviews. I know. I have a book out, too. <laughs> Tell me. What's your book? Uh, it's called Enlightenment Guaranteed. The only book on Zen you'll ever need. Wow. Is it on Amazon? It's on Amazon, yeah. Awesome. Well, there I go. Go buy another book. <laughs> I need I, I buy I need I need to buy another bookcase. Well, congratulations to you. Thank you. Well, this has been a Thank pleasure. Thank you again for having me. You're and welcome. I you know, I'm I'm anxious to see what people think of the miniseries as well. So Yeah. And I'll put the links to your website and to your books in the notes of the episode so my listeners can buy your book and give you reviews. Thank you. You're very kind, and I appreciate the support. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's always interesting talking about Pam. <laughs> Great. Well, thanks for being on, and hang on for one more moment while I just play the okay. outro.